Justify Prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument But at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgo Sen Gupta Welcome to Justify As always our show has four segments To open we have Roundup where I give you the latest developments from the world of the Indian judiciary and to close we have Clatter our legal quiz hopefully a bit tougher than Clat In deep dive I argue why the promise of article 370 was a promise of autonomy to the Kashmiri people a promise betrayed almost as soon as it was made We then have a tete a tete with Jinali Dani and Pranay Modi research fellows at the D Center for Legal Policy who have researched this issue extensively but first today's roundup the last week was an interesting week for the supreme court there were a couple of high profile cases but a couple of cases that will be of great interest to lawyers and the high court case as always which is extremely pertinent to us all So first the big news coming out of the Supreme Court the case of Shiv Sena versus the Union of India the issue before the court was the legality of the letter written by Devendra Fadnavis taking claim to form a government in Maharashtra and the governor inviting him to form the government this was an interim order of the Supreme Court and one that's more based on common sense rather than law it very simply said following a line of precedence that the floor test is the only constitutionally permissible way of determining who has the confidence of the house and so it ordered a floor test to be conducted the next day and the rest as they say is history so it's not a case that's particularly relevant from advancing jurisprudence but it's really important from the point of view of underlining that we still remain a rule of law society moving on to another case which fewer would have heard of this is the case of jitendra singh versus the ministry of environment the appellant in this case was a socially active lawyer and he wanted legal protection for his village pond his village pond was given to private entities by the greater noida industrial development authority this was in pursuance of a government order which allowed taking over of ponds and other public places in exceptional circumstances for in their words quote huge projects unquote that's a really interesting way to draft a legal document call something a huge project and then let's interpret it till the cows come home so the question before the supreme court was whether common water bodies can be alienated for private purposes the national green tribunal had very surprisingly held that since an alternate pond had been created no case remained the supreme court disagreed the court said very clearly that the pond was a common resource and given it was a common resource it could not be alienated for a private party 
An earlier case of the Supreme Court, Jagpal Singh, had allowed such alienation only in exceptional circumstances, which were essentially seen as acts for the benefit of the downtrodden. Since in this case, giving the pond to a private party was not in the interests of the downtrodden, but were in the interests of development for a huge project, it was held that this was impermissible. So Mr. Singh got his pond back or hopefully will get his pond back as is more likely. Moving on to a case that's really interesting from the point of view of law. Hindustan Construction Company versus the Union of India was a decision of a three-judge bench of the Supreme Court striking down Section 87 of the Arbitration and Conciliation Act, which was amended and brought in in 2019. There were other questions relating to the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code as well. The court upheld the constitutionality of those provisions, but we won't get into those because they are not really that much of interest particularly to me. But as far as the Arbitration and Conciliation Act question is concerned, it's a bit complicated, so I'll take a minute to explain. As many of you might know, arbitrations in India are slow. One of the reasons is because there is an automatic stay that is granted whenever an arbitral award is challenged in court. This was sought to be undone by an amendment to the Arbitration Act in 2015 which provided that no automatic stay would apply. The question that arose subsequently, and it must have been an ingenious lawyer who raised it, what would happen in those cases where court proceedings were already ongoing? So if the court proceedings were already ongoing, as in would there be a stay or would there not be an automatic stay? A committee of experts under Justice Sri Krishna, of which I was also a member, we said that the provision should apply only prospectively, that is, to only those arbitral proceedings that had commenced after 23rd October 2015, which was the day that Amendment Act came in. This was fairly commonsensical, we thought, that it would prevent a situation where the status quo in several cases, where automatic stays had already been granted, would not have to be changed. So it was in the interest of practicality. The government, however, didn't act on that recommendation immediately. So the Supreme Court had stepped in and in BCCI versus Kochi Cricket, it laid down a different rule. It said that it should apply to all court proceedings pending on that date. So all court proceedings pending on 23rd October 2015 would be covered. That is, no automatic stay would apply. This is different from the Sri Krishna rule, but I agree this would have brought a quietus to this issue. It should really have been the end of the matter. But then the government passed an amendment acting on the Sri Krishna committee's report and accepted it and so reversed the position that the Supreme Court had held, creating a new set of confusions. The argument was whether by this amendment, the parliament had overturned the judgment of the court which was impermissible, and whether the section which turned the clock back to a position where automatic stays could be granted was manifestly arbitrary. This is a really interesting judgment by Justice Rohit Nariman, who first said that this provision 
removed the basis of the judgment because it deleted the sections that is section 26 which was the core issue that the court was interpreting in the BCCI case. So it was open to parliament to remove the basis of the judgment. It was not overturning a judgment and so on that ground it would not be struck down. But it would be struck down on the ground that it is manifestly arbitrary because it results in slowing down proceedings, is contrary to the current trends in arbitration law and the government's own stated ambition of making India an, arbitra an arbitration hub and hopefully not an arbitrary one. Now, striking down laws because three judges think it is a bad idea is itself not a good idea. There may have been several things wrong with this provision and Justice Nariman is right that it did not have been passed at this stage. But for three judges to strike down a provision because it is manifestly arbitrary is subjective, is uncertain, does not promote the rule of law and may become over the course of time the epitome of manifest arbitrariness itself. Turning now to our High Court case. Our High Court case of this week is from the Delhi High Court uh, in a case relating to sexual harassment and each of us should be aware of the judgment of the Delhi High Court. A single judge, Justice C. Harishankar in Ajay Tiwari versus University of Delhi. The two questions were, is a sexual harassment charge to be treated differently in a teacher-student relationship? And is consensual conduct the same as welcome conduct? In this case, a teacher had been disengaged from his services on account of a sexual harassment allegation against him and he had challenged it. The court in repelling his contention said that in a teacher-student relationship, no defense of an act being welcome is permitted given the sacred nature of the relationship. This seems intuitively correct. A teacher cannot abuse his or her position in this manner. Another question arises in law. What other relationships are similarly sacred? Secondly, it said unwelcome conduct is actually a state of mind. That something is unwelcome is a state of mind. Consent is an expression of conduct. So even a consensual act could be an unwelcome one. This is something that everyone, particularly teachers, need to remember closely because there should be no place for arguments of this sort as the court has very clearly held. On today's deep dive and tete-a-tete, -tete, we discuss the troubled beginnings of Kashmir. Once upon a time, there was the lake of Sati and from the beginning of the Kalpas, the land in the womb of the Himalayas was filled with waters during the intervening period of six Manus. Now, when the present period of Vaivasvat Manu had come, the Prajapati Kashyap induced the gods Druhina, Upendra, Rudra and others to descend and having caused Jalodbhava, who resided in it to be slain, founded upon the site of the lake, the kingdom of Kashmir. That's Kalhana from Raj Tarangini. The myth of the origins of Kashmir, as you can see from Kalhana's quote, 
is a bloody myth of the slaying of Jalodbhav, who resided in Kashmir. But Raj Tarangini, after all, is a poem, and this is a likely reference to icebergs, Jalodbhava, literally meaning that whose origin is in the lake. Slaying in Kashmir today, unfortunately, has a very different connotation, where the bloody myth is no longer legend, but reality. A chapter in the sordid saga of Kashmir was written on August 5, 2019. On August 5, 2019, the President of India, on the recommendation of the Indian Parliament, declared that Article 370 of the Constitution of India would cease to be operative. In its place, a new clause was introduced, making the Constitution applicable in its entirety to Jammu and Kashmir. As a consequence, the constitutional relationship between JNK and India changed fundamentally. Whereas before this declaration, under the erstwhile 370, the applicability of the provisions of the constitution to JNK was contingent on a power jointly vested in the President of India and the state government of JNK to modify or exempt such application. After it, the contingent condition was dropped. The constitution would apply to JNK as it did to every other state. To understand the genesis of 370, we must trace the terms of JNK's accession to India. In 1947, as the ruler of a large princely state comprising Jammu, the Kashmir Valley, Ladakh and Gilgit, which was leased to the government of India for 60 years, the British still believed in selling and buying of land and large tranches of land that too, Maharaja Hari Singh, the Maharaja, harbored dreams of an independent Jammu and Kashmir. As a consequence, when paramountcy lapsed and the dominions of Pakistan and India were established, he acceded to neither. However, when his state came under attack from, as he says, Afridi's soldiers in plain clothes and desperados, the Maharaja had no option but to ask for help from the Indian Dominion. Since this was not possible without accession, on 26th of October 1947, an instrument of accession was executed, making Kashmir a part of India. There is some controversy about the exact date, but let's go with 26th October now. As part of this accession, he ceded jurisdiction to the government of India on only three matters relating to defense, external affairs, and communications. This instrument, it's critical to note, was exactly the same that other rulers of princely states like Baroda or Rajasthan had signed elsewhere in India. Critically, it provided in Clause 8 that nothing in this instrument affects the continuance of my sovereignty in and over this state or save as provided by or under this instrument, which means that JNK, like every other state that had acceded to India in 1947, retained its sovereignty in all matters except foreign affairs, defense, and communications. Thus, in doing so, JNK was neither special nor an outlier. Mountbatten, the governor general, in view of the urgency of the situation, accepted the accession. However, he said that in any state where accession is the subject of dispute, the question should be decided in accordance with, I quote, the wishes of the people. Thus, Mountbatten, speaking on behalf of the government of India, gave an assurance that as soon as law and order have been restored in Kashmir and her soil cleared of the invader, accession would be determined 
by a reference to the people. This reference to the people was a formal policy of the government of India in respect of all princely states. The ruled rather than the ruler would determine the future of the state and its relationship with the Union of India. Sheikh Abdullah, the leader of the National Conference and Prime Minister of the state from 1948, supported accession at the time, albeit reserving to the people the right to finally decide whether to accede and on what terms. Listen in to what Jawaharlal Nehru had to say about October 1947 and the accession. October 1947. Considerable parts of the Jammu and Kashmir state have been overrun by raiders from outside, well-armed and well-equipped, and they have sacked and looted the towns and villages and put many of the inhabitants to the sword. Frightfulness suddenly descended upon this lovely and peaceful country. To be fighting side by side with the people of Kashmir against fanatic hordes was a heartening experience which set aside for the moment the memories of communal strife and partition. I trust in this defense we shall give a demonstration to all India and to the world how we can function unitedly and in a non-communal way in Kashmir. In this way, this terrible crisis in Kashmir may well lead to a healing of the deep wounds which India has suffered in recent months. In deference to Abdullah's wishes, taken in the absence of elections as representative of the popular will, JNK, unlike other princely states, did not sign a second instrument of accession. This instrument would have given powers to the Union of India to legislate on all matters relating to List 1 of Schedule 7, including residuary powers. It would also have cancelled the first instrument of accession and would not have contained a clause that retained the sovereignty of the princely state. It can thus be argued that JNK, by not signing the second instrument of accession, unlike other princely states, at this point still retained a vestige of sovereignty, though it was a part of India. Further, this state of affairs was with the full knowledge and acquiescence of the government of India itself. In view of this distinction, between JNK and other princely states, coupled with a lack of consensus between the government of India, Sheikh Abdullah and Yuvraj Karan Singh, who was discharging the duties of Maharaja of JNK, an interim constitutional arrangement for the state of JNK was explored. This was the genesis of draft Article 306A, the precursor to Article 370 of the Constitution. Explaining its rationale, N. Gopal Swami Ayangar, a very interesting man who had earlier served as the Prime Minister of Kashmir and was brought in as a minister without portfolio in the first government of India and then became the minister in charge of Kashmir affairs, said in the Constituent Assembly, I quote, Again, the government of India have committed themselves to the people of Kashmir in certain respects. They have committed themselves to the position that an opportunity would be given to the people of the state to decide for themselves whether they will remain with the republic or go out of it. We are committed to ascertaining the will of the people by means of a plebiscite provided that peaceful and normal conditions are restored and the impartiality of the plebiscite could be guaranteed. 
we have also agreed that the will of the people through the instrument of a constituent assembly will determine the constitution of the state as well as the sphere of union jurisdiction over the state till a constituent assembly comes into being only an interim arrangement is possible and not an arrangement which could at once be brought into line with the arrangement that exists in the case of the other states article 306a is an attempt to establish such a system end quote from this speech it's clear to me that article 370 was intended to be an interim provision till such time that the constituent assembly of jnk determined the exact contours of the state's relationship with india kashmir would thus have to determine the contours of its own relationship with india and 370 was a placeholder till such a determination was made such determination could have taken two forms first they could have decided through their state constitution to carve out a special status for themselves under the constitution of india alternatively they could choose to integrate fully into the union of india notwithstanding a separate state constitution the negotiations between the government of india and the government of jnk had remained inconclusive necessitating that both these possibilities be kept open article 370 reflected this open state of affairs and entrenched it in the constitutional scheme this was a promise but equally there was a betrayal because article 370 firmly closed the door on the people of jnk determining for themselves whether or not to accede to india itself there was no option that was given in article 370 to determine the fundamental question of whether jnk would remain a part of india india promised plebiscite but gave article 370 which seems to have shut the door on any autonomous existence of jammu and kashmir outside the union of india the will of the people it seems was constitutionally stultified to discuss the troubled beginnings of kashmir as i said earlier we have jinali and pranay research fellows at the vidhi center for legal policy welcome welcome both to the show so jinali to you first india insisted in the un and elsewhere that kashmir's accession was final we've had many leaders saying that time and again but at the same time it kept saying publicly in india that kashmiris would decide on accession fully and finally through a plebiscite even ayangar in the quote that i read out seems to say the same thing to me this seems like an inconsistency you've researched quite a bit on this uh, what do you make of this apparent inconsistency so i think the fact that uh, accession was final in fact and in law is not just acknowledged by uh, the indian government publicly uh, you know by various leaders uh, as well as uh, in through their internal records they are constantly acknowledging and reiterating that accession was final so it's not just acknowledged by india but also by representatives of the jammu and kashmir constituent assembly 
um and uh, in the constituent assembly debates of jammu and kashmir uh, when they are drafting the constitution of jammu and kashmir they are constantly acknowledging that accession was final and complete so um at least on paper both sides to some extent do agree that accession was final however having said that uh, what happens is that when they are discussing the uh, accession at least in the constituent assembly debates uh, what the members also continuously keep saying is that the people of jammu and kashmir have the right to ratify the accession now this is problematic because the moment we speak about ratification by the people of jammu and kashmir the idea is uh, you're you're implying that accession was not final right because there is an additional step required which is ratification by the people so what happens if they don't ratify so views change across over the years uh, when they are discussing it in the constituent assembly so initially when sheikh abdullah in his inaugural address uh, to the jammu and kashmir assembly he says that we as a constituent assembly of jammu and kashmir can decide on accession we can either accede to pakistan or we can accede to india or we can choose to remain independent so he is discussing pros and cons of all three different um, three different options so that seems to suggest to me that all three options were open Yes, all three options were open, but he personally was inclined towards acceding to India. Sure. And uh, which is why ratification at that point of time is not considered to be really controversial because representatives of Jammu and Kashmir uh, Constituent Assembly are continuously saying that although we can choose to remain independent, uh, Pakistan is never going to be an option, and we are always going to be with India because. we feel that our aspirations as as kashmiris will be best uh, best achieved if we accede to india so they are constantly talking about accession to india which is why you know uh, i don't think ratification at that point of time raises that much concern with uh, with the indian government because you know sheikh abdullah was very pally with with nehru at that so point of time so is it then your argument that ratification itself was more uh, or the option of ratification itself was more a political symbol that uh, sheikh abdullah could take to his constituents saying that this is an expression of our autonomy but it was really not substantively significant because uh, everyone knew that they were going to become a part of india yes um I think it you know you're correct in saying that I don't think it was substantively significant at least in the initial years but things obviously change after he's arrested so after he's arrested um and you know he uh, you know Sheikh Abdullah Nehru fall apart uh things change because um there are members in the constituent assembly post his arrest saying that this constituent assembly is not um is not competent to decide on accession so the same set of members who 3 years back were talking about how the constituent assembly is uh, competent to decide the question of accession and they are a manifestation of the will of the people of Kash- uh, you know of kashmir you know now now they are saying completely uh, they're saying a completely different thing which is that you know we as a house have failed uh, we don't represent the will of the Kash- uh, people of kashmir because of you know sheikh abdullah's arrest and we think we should be having a plebiscite so views have obviously changed across the years with respect to a plebiscite uh with respect to ratification of the accession who's who's supposed to ratify the accession will it be the people of kashmir through a plebiscite through a direct you know vote or will it be indirectly through a constituent assembly so views change across both sides over the years depending on what's happening internationally as well as you know uh, negotiations with pakistan military altercations with pakistan so things are constantly But changing in kashmir as it correct me if i'm wrong does the view ever change about plebiscite because it appears to me 
that on the question of plebiscite, there seems to be an understanding that there will be a plebiscite when law and order is restored. And that seems to be the understanding for the first seven or eight years of Kashmir's existence as a state in India, that there will be a plebiscite and we'll get an option to determine as to what will happen to our future. But you, you said that there were different views on that as well. Uh, what, what were those views? Um, so I think um, internal correspondence, if you go through internal correspondence, even though publicly at the UN, uh, India is saying that we will be holding a plebiscite as soon as law and order comes back to normal in Kashmir, um, Nehru in his internal correspondence, you know, it seems that he's of the opinion that it's, you know, plebiscite will never be an option because uh, it's going to be extremely difficult for Pakistan to withdraw all of its people from Kashmir. So his idea was, uh, you know, Pakistan withdraws all of its, you know, people from Kashmir, all of its forces from Kashmir. Only then will we withdraw all of our forces from Kashmir. And then we'll have a plebiscite under the um, under the supervision of the UN. Uh, but personal, you know, correspondence between Nehru, Sheikh Abdullah, internal records show that he is he's not confident whether that would ever be possible. Even Sheikh Abdullah in his initial years is not too happy with having a plebiscite because, um, you know, he, he expresses several concerns. And I think one of the concerns is that, uh, you know, what if uh, what if we have a situation where we decide that all of the refugees come back to India and also get a, get a chance to vote? So what he says is that it would mean that, you know, we, we can potentially end up in a situation where Pakistan ends up sending multiple refugees and, you know, in order to tilt the vote in favor of them. And this may not be a preferable situation for us. What he also realizes is that, that there is a possibility that you know if a plebiscite is held, he may have to step down. Uh, so he in, in the initial years, he too was not too happy with the idea of a plebiscite. So the idea is that we need to look at the concept of a plebiscite, uh, you know, and it's not just one view. It's it's different views, different things being communicated. And also, we have to contextualize how those views changed across the years, depending on what was happening internationally. Mm. And also, we have to be very aware of the fact that what people, you know, what Nehru was saying publicly was very different from his own personal opinions and what he personally intuitively thought. He didn't think, you know, Kashmir would ever reach a situation where law and order would be completely normal, where plebiscite could be held. So I think his personal views are very different from what he was saying publicly. So where does 370 fit in all this? Uh, do you think then that 370 was a pragmatic expression of the fact that plebiscite is really not going to happen? So Kashmir is going to remain a part of India. So Article 1, which makes Kashmir a part of India, is made unamendable in some sense uh, and 370 allows the Kashmir Constituent Assembly to determine its constituent relationship with India. So do you think that 370 was pragmatic or do you think there was something else which explained the why 370 was written in a way which while promising uh, autonomy to the extent of plebiscite was actually providing autonomy to the extent of determining a constitutional relationship? It was pragmatic and uh, it uh, because, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, uh, they could not come up with a permanent arra arrangement with respect to, you know, the relationship between India and Kashmir. Uh, they decided we're going to have a temporary stopgap arrangement also because, uh, you know, 
the situation at that point in time with Pakistan was such there were so many military altercations happening they did not foresee a situation where law and order would come back to normal so I think there were multiple aspects at play and because we were at that point of time drafting the Indian constitution and you know the relationship with Kashmir had to be somehow reflected in that constitution 370 was a temporary stopgap arrangement it was a very pragmatic arrangement that you know we are going to have something in place until you know the will of the people which by the way 370 says will be manifested either in the form of the constituent assembly of Jammu and Kashmir or the state government you know, decides what the final relationship would be like. So it is a very pragmatic approach. It is a stopgap arrangement until the will of the people decide otherwise. Okay. Uh, so Pranay, you've uh, done quite a bit of research on Article 370 and its origins. Uh, tell us a little bit as to how Jammu and Kashmir came to accept the Constitution of India. I believe it entered a proclamation uh, accepting the Constitution of India. Uh, and tell us a little bit about how Article 370 came into being and how Jammu and Kashmir became a part of the Indian Union. The proclamation is seemingly an innocuous document, but has vital importance in the case of Jammu and Kashmir. Um, this is because the instrument of accession, as you recall, was signed under Section 6 of the Government of India Act 1935. Now, with the coming of the Constitution of India, this would obviously go away and have no legal merit remaining. This meant that each Indian state which had acceded to the Union of India had to issue a proclamation claiming that the Constitution of India would also be their own constitution. You can see this in the example of Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh where the proclamation says that the constitution relationship they have should continue and be further strengthened and thereby they adopt the constitution of India as their own constitutions. So they use the words as their own constitution. Yeah, and those words become very crucial because they're missing from the Kashmir proclamation. Okay, what does the Kashmir proclamation say? The Kashmir proclamation is very interesting in that it does not say that the constitutional relationship will be strengthened, but it merely says that the constitutional relationship shall continue. And further, it says that the constitution of India, in as much as it is applicable to the state of Jammu and Kashmir, will continue to define the constitutional relationship between Jammu and Kashmir and India. Okay, so hang on, just let's slow down a little bit for our listeners. So it says three things. First, it doesn't say that the relationship should be strengthened, but that the relationship should continue, number one. Number two, it says that the constitution of India insofar as it is applicable. Now, that's an interesting word and perhaps it's a reference to Article 370 itself. That's the second. And third, insofar as it is applicable, it will govern the constitutional relationship. So, Jammu and Kashmir does not say like the example you gave of Rajasthan that the constitution of India is its own. It says that it will be applicable. That's right. And what these words do is that they leave ample scope for this relationship to be decided in the future, which is exactly what 370 is. 370 is a mechanism that allows the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir to come up with its own idea of what the relationship with the Union of India should be. And which is why the proclamation is left open-ended by using words in as much as it is applicable and will govern the relationship with the Union of India. 
Had this not been the case, had the proclamation simply said that we accept the constitution of India as our own constitution, then in spite of 370 being a part of the constitution of India, the rest of the constitution would also apply to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So this proclamation, which is a seemingly innocuous document, which is, you know, just a procedural formality, is not really that in the case of Jammu and Kashmir. It is a very significant document which makes sure that 370 can be enforced in the future. So who signed this proclamation? This proclamation was interestingly signed by Yuvraj Karan Singh, who was supposed to only be the figurehead, constitutional head of the state at that point in time. There's controversy that's raised by no, Sheikh... he was the Maharaja. As in he was standing in for his father. So he was obviously the, the constitutional authority to sign all documents on behalf of the state of Jammu and Kashmir, right? That's arguable. And Sheikh Abdullah makes that very argument. Uh, it seems like Sheikh Abdullah was not in the country when this proclamation was issued. He was actually in New York uh, being a part of the UN arguments. And when he comes back, he receives these letters from the Indian Ministry of States, which make clear to him that this proclamation has been signed. And Sheikh Abdullah immediately writes back saying, this proclamation could not have been issued by the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir because this did not come from his council of ministers. This did not come from the government of Jammu and Kashmir, which is why Abdullah is of the opinion that it does not have legal sanctity. No, but the Council of Ministers, remind, and for the sake of our listeners, uh, Maharaja Hari Singh had by a proclamation on the 5th of March 1948, set up a Council of Ministers, which was the first time that uh, the state of Jammu and Kashmir had some semblance of elected government. But if I remember correctly, the Council of Ministers per se could not give any advice that was binding on the Maharaja. The Maharaja would have to take their advice, but the sovereignty still very much vested in the Maharaja himself. So what? So about Abdullah's argument, uh, the fact is there might be some moral basis for saying that the Maharaja should have taken uh, Abdullah and the Council of Ministers into confidence. But legally, do you think that the move was illegitimate? In my personal view, I do not think that the uh, that the move was legally incorrect. Uh, but politically... That's, that's spoken like a true lawyer. Many double negatives in there. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But no, you have to keep the politics of it in mind as well. Um, Sheikh Abdullah had almost carried out a coup in Jammu and Kashmir at this point in time. He had forced Maharaja Hari Singh and his wife out of the state. And with the support of Nehru, established Yuvraj Karan Singh, who was merely 18 years old, as regent of the state. So in Abdullah's head, he was virtually in control of the administration of Jammu and Kashmir. And politically speaking, when he comes back from New York and sees that the proclamation has been issued without his consent, he throws a fit, he raises these arguments where he says that this is not legitimate. And why he had to make these points was because some words were excluded from the proclamation, which he originally wanted to be included in the proclamation. What were those words? These words were that after the proclamation, he wanted to qualify the entire proclamation by saying that everything declared would be subject to ratification by the will of the people of Jammu and Kashmir. Okay, so we come back to this question of ratification, as in which seems to me, or at least seems to Jirali, to be a bit of a fig leaf, because... 
no one really thought that ratification would go in any direction other than saying that Kashmir would remain a part of India, which is certainly what uh, Sheikh Abdullah wanted. So what we have for sure is a proclamation which makes Jammu and Kashmir a part of India, but it allows the Jammu and Kashmir Constituent Assembly to determine its own constitutional relationship with India. So Jammu and Kashmir is a part and legally a part, but what its relationship with India will be is going to be determined subsequently. That's where we are. Now, if we can accept that, then I think that provides a foundation for us to look at what happened on 5th of August 2019. And we don't want to spend too much time on it. The matter is going to be in the Supreme Court uh, and will be litigated extensively. Uh, so I wanted to ask the both of you, you're both lawyers. I know you've done a fair amount of historical research on the troubled beginnings of Kashmir. But do you think as lawyers cognizant of history, but also knowing the limitations of history in legal interpretation, simply put, are the actions of the Union Parliament on the 5th of August 2019 to nullify Article 370 uh, constitutional? We won't get into the question of division of states. That's an entirely separate issue. But the action of nullification of 370 and the manner in which it was done, in your view, whatever it's moral defensibility or otherwise might be, is it constitutional? Um, so I think um, definitely, and these are my personal views, uh, what happened on August 5 raises concerns. Um, and the reason I say this is, uh, you know, having read the history of Article 370 so far, um, I definitely think that Article 370 was um, representing a federal bargain between what was at that point of time the Central Indian Government and the state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, which, you know, you rightly pointed out, uh, did enjoy some vestiges of sovereignty. Um, it was a pact between two parties, and the understanding was um, that if the pact had to be modified or abrogated, um, both parties had to come back on the drawing, on the table again and agree to that modification or abrogation. Um, uh, it simply was that you know the will of the people of the Jammu and, uh, of the state of Jammu and Kashmir would be taken into consideration before that special status is taken away from them or is modified in any any form whatsoever. Now that will of the people is manifested in different ways in Article 370. You know, at, in one instance it is manifested uh, through the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. In another in another provision it's manifested through the state government of Jammu and Kashmir. So. At various places in Article 370, you know, it's, you know, what what is the understanding that's coming out is that it's a pact between two parties. And that's very clear from, you know, the, uh, the understanding that the representatives of Jammu and Kashmir Constituent Assembly had when they were discussing their own constitution. Uh, in 1952, when they are discussing the Delhi Agreement, you know, uh, Sheikh Abdullah says, we've had a chance to look at the constitutional relationship between India and Jammu and Kashmir. And uh, we think 370 and various members say it, uh, is was was an understanding between one rising nation, you know, and another rising nation. It's an understanding. We have only acceded to the extent of these three subjects. Mm. We enjoy residual sovereignty. Um, and at multiple places, they also acknowledge that uh, the fact that, you know, Article 370 says it's a temporary provision doesn't mean that the status can be taken away tomorrow. It doesn't mean that Kashmir can be completely All right. integrated. All right. So basically the point is that it's a pact. Yes. It's a pact which requires 
two hands to clap. Yes. And I'm now sort of finishing the sentence for you that uh, in this case, only one hand has clapped. Yes. So perhaps there are significant concerns over yes. what's happened. Pranay, yes. do you agree with that view? I do agree with that view. Uh, but my reasons for thinking that the move was unconstitutional are slightly different. Uh, I believe that the crucial question we should look at when judging constitutionality is the equation of constituent assembly in article 370 sub clause 3 with the parliament of India in the actions on August 5th, 2019. Now, there are many steps to this equation, each of which can itself be held to be not correct in law. But let us consider the cumulative effect of these actions, which is that Constituent Assembly was equated to Parliament of India. Um, now, can this happen? As the law stood on 5th August, the power to initiate action under Article 370 sub clause 3 could only be exercised by the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir. If you take a textual interpretation of these words, then the actions are most definitely unconstitutional because there is no constituent assembly which has started this action. Because there is no constituent assembly that exists. That's right. Mm. Um, but let's stretch the argument further. Let's look at it from a purposive understanding. The purpose of putting 373 in place was to give the people of Jammu and Kashmir the right to decide when 370 would be changed and on what terms it would be changed. So much like Janali said, and Orgo, you also said, there, there needed to be two hands to clap for this article to be changed at all. One of those hands had to be the people of Jammu and Kashmir. And the actions on August 5th have no say from the people of Jammu and Kashmir whatsoever. So on that ground, even a purposive understanding of Article 373 would lead us to the conclusion that the actions were unconstitutional. Okay. Okay. So I think we are almost out of time. But if I were to summarize in a sentence, then it would seem that the beginnings of Kashmir, albeit troubled, do point to a single salient fact that some amount of autonomy of the state of Jammu and Kashmir and its people was preserved by Article 370. That autonomy has been undone by the actions on the 5th of August. So thanks very much, Pranay. Thank you very much, Jinali, for joining me on the episode today. And time for clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat. First of all, the answers from last week. This clearly was a tough one because many of you didn't get it right. But this was the famous American jurist and perhaps someone who would have been a Supreme Court judge, Robert Bork, who is quoting the famous philosopher Edmund Burke talking about compromise and barter being the essence of politics. We've had a winner, Mohan Gauda from Kolar in Karnataka. Mohan is the same winner our co-winner from last time. So Mohan, clearly you've cracked this quiz and I hope that there are challengers to Mohan who come up in future episodes. So time for this week's quiz. This one's a bit different. It's not a quote like the previous ones. So here goes. This opening batsman for Uttar Pradesh in the Ranji Trophy 
was part of one of its most successful squads in the early 2000s and heroically led them to a final playing through almost an entire day. But his fame in the world of law is because he shares his name with one of the most famous parties in a Supreme Court case in India. Who is this batsman? Write in with your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in All right answers will go into a pool where the winner will get a thousand rupee gift voucher from Amazon. So do put your thinking caps on and we look forward to your answers. Thanks very much for joining us this week. Adjourned. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.